0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, The Sons of God, Sons of God, Part 2. Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 14 through 15. Now, in our first consideration of this text, last Lord's Day, we began our text by considering Paul's assertion in verse 14. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, verse 5, are those who live according to the Spirit. Those who walk or those who live according to the Spirit are those who are indwelt by the Spirit, verse 9. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit, and those who are led by the Spirit belong to this distinct and glorious assembly of saints. Paul says, these are sons of God, verse 14. Now, the sons of God, as we've seen, are those who are marked or characterized by the leading of the Holy Spirit. That leading, particularly moral, involving putting to death the deeds of the body, verse 13. And it's in this way that the Spirit's leading then is a mark of their sonship. The Spirit's leading and leading in a moral way, leading them to put to death the the deeds of the body, the Spirit's leading is a mark of their sonship, verse 14. Now next, as we considered last week, concerning the nature of their sonship, the nature of that blessed status as sons of God, the Lord has taken them into this distinct and glorious assembly by adoption. The nature of their sonship is by adoption. We are not sons of God by nature, we're not born into that heritage through heritage through natural generation but rather we are sons of God by adoption and born into that glorious assembly or that glorious congregation not through natural generation but through supernatural regeneration. We are born again as it were as sons of God by a work of his spirit. Now that brings us to verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of God as a spirit of slavery you didn't receive the Spirit of God as a spirit of bondage again to fear, that slavish fear of sin, that slavish fear of condemnation, that slavish bondage to death. You did not receive the Spirit of God as a spirit of slavery. The Spirit has set you free from slavery to fear. Rather, verse 15, you received the Spirit of God as the Spirit of adoption. And by whom, by the Spirit, we are given the privilege, given the blessing of calling upon God as our heavenly Father. So in part, part one, we consider the mark of our sonship and we consider the nature of our sonship. Now, I plan for us to continue this this morning by considering the basis of our sonship. The mark of our sonship, the nature of our sonship now, the basis of our sonship. The basis for our sonship. Paul here is saying in Romans chapter 8 verse 14 that we are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit, those who are indwelt by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Brothers and sisters, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, then you belong to this glorious glorious assembly. You've been brought into communion with the triune God by a work of the Spirit. The Spirit now indwells you and the Spirit now leads you into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You are the sons of God. Now, that glorious status has been conferred upon you through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the Spirit. And the basis for that sonship is important for us to understand. We need to understand on what basis does Paul in Romans chapter 8 call us or consider us sons of God? A sonship marked by new resurrection life according to the Spirit. What is the basis of our sonship? The basis of our sonship is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself declared himself to be the son of God in power or with power according to the spirit by the resurrection from the dead. I want to make that connection for us this morning. And I want to do that by beginning in Romans chapter 1. Turn back there with me. Romans chapter 1. I only turned two pages in my Bible, but it feels like two years. It has been two years since we've been in Romans chapter one. So it's a long time. If you've not remembered these sermons, I commend them to you to refresh your memory in these sermons from Romans chapter one. In the opening verses of this letter, Paul explains that he, Paul, the apostle, has been set apart to the gospel of God. He's been set apart to the gospel. That good news, Romans chapter one, verse three, is concerning God's own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who Paul describes there now as born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, that's verse three, verse four, and declared to be the son of God with or in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That is a loaded statement. This declaration, this declaration declared to be the son of God with power is a reference to his exaltation is a a reference to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's statement in verse 3, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that's a reference to his incarnation. It's a reference to his humiliation. Okay? The one who is co-equal. The one who is co-eternal with the Father. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. God the Son became enfleshed. He took upon himself... Humanity, our humanity, stepped out of glory, as it were, to walk in the mud and dirt of our existence. And the one who made himself of no reputation, the one who took upon himself the form of a slave, the one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, that one who humbled himself, that one who humbled himself in a state of humiliation... That that one has been raised from his state of humiliation and has been raised from the dead to a state now of exaltation. Raised from humiliation to a state of exaltation. Therefore, this is from Philippians chapter two, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So no longer the Son of God in suffering, no longer the incarnate Son in weakness, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he is now the Son of God in power. In power. If you look at verse 3, That phrase, in power, does not modify or describe the declaration. That name or that phrase, in power, modifies or describes the Son of God. Do you see? He is the Son of God in power. Declared to be the Son of God, a Son in power, according to the Spirit of holiness. And he has been raised from the dead and exalted now to the right hand of the majesty uh, by or according to the power of the Spirit. Now, in the words of Paul, Romans chapter one, verse three, Jesus Christ, our Lord was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He has been declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, literally from among dead ones, plural. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, You could say the firstborn, as Scripture does, the firstborn among many brothers, raised from the dead in power. Jesus Christ raised in power. Jesus Christ possessing power by the Spirit. He's raised from the dead, literally from among dead ones. The firstborn among many brothers, the Bible will say. Now think with me. There's a contrast that's established in the text of Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Do you see it there? A contrast. Jesus Christ was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit. And that declaration of sonship, that declaration of sonship was made by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead declared his sonship is what Paul is saying there in verse three and four. Now, Many like to think that his resurrection proves his deity. We've heard that a lot. I'm sure you've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. But if you're in Christ, you're going to be resurrected one day. Does that resurrection prove your deity? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Now, the resurrection from the dead, according to Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, his resurrection from the dead proves his sonship. It proves his sonship. The saving work of God through the gospel is is accomplished by the incarnate Son who died and was raised again. Do you see? The saving work of God accomplished by Jesus Christ, the God-man, certainly, but a man, who died and was raised from the dead. In other words, he is the firstborn from among the dead ones. The first one raised from among the dead ones. And his resurrection consisted in the glorification and in the enthronement of his humanity. So, the term, the title, Son of God, although it is of the God man, he is fully God and fully man. The term Son of God emphasizes his humanity as the incarnate Son who died and was raised again. When Paul refers to the Son of God, he's referring to the incarnate Son. His resurrection then from the dead was according to the spirit. It was according to the spirit, certainly his resurrection by the spirit, the spirit of God. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead in the power of the spirit or through the power of the spirit. His resurrection was according to the spirit in the sense that it was by or through or in the power of the spirit. And the Lord's Incarnation life, then representing the old age of weakness associated with our flesh, is gloriously transformed into the Lord's resurrection life now, representing the new age characterized by the Holy Spirit and by resurrection power. There is a, a new creation, uh, a new age, so to speak, that has infiltrated or invaded this age by the Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That resurrection by the Spirit. Now, that life or sphere or age of the Spirit as opposed to the sphere of the flesh or this age, this age of the flesh is marked by resurrection power. And we know from looking at Ephesians 1 recently that the same power with which God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead now is at work in you who believe. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Now, that designation, that designation Son of God for the Lord Jesus Christ is extremely important. The Son of God was first used in the Old Testament in reference to Adam. First used in reference to Adam. In Luke's genealogy, uh, Luke chapter 3, Luke refers to Adam as the Son of God. The reason for that, Genesis chapter 1, Adam, the man Adam, was created in the likeness or according to the image of God in God's likeness according to his image in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 that language is applied to sonship adam was the son of God in the sense that adam was created in the image of God or according to the likeness of God adam in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 adam becomes the father of Seth and the Bible says that Seth was the son of Adam and a son in Adam's own likeness, or after Adam's own image. Sons are born according to the image of their father, you could say. So, the pinnacle of the original creation is Adam, the son of God. Created in God's image, created after God's likeness, and bearing sons, the intention was for Adam to bear sons after God's own image, after God's own likeness with the intention of filling the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We know the story, don't we? Adam falls. Adam couldn't deliver as the son of God. Adam failed under temptation, fell into sin, and with that fall, with that fall, creation is either doomed and we are hopeless and helpless, destitute, headed for death and eternity in hell, or that fall teaches us, points us to hope in a new creation, hope for another Adam, so to speak, hope for a new order, a new cosmos. By the grace of God, we're taught to hope for restoration in a new creation. We're taught to hope in a new Adam, the last Adam, a true son of God, a son who would be faithful A son who would be fruitful and would multiply, filling the earth with sons of glory. We're taught to look for a future glorious son of God, a true son. Now, the term son of God was later applied to the nation of Israel. God says to Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, "'Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn.'" So I say to you, saying to Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So was Israel, we know the story, don't we? (laughs) Was Israel able to bring about a new creation? Did that earthly kingdom represent in fullness the kingdom of God, a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, everlasting holiness, Did Israel live up to its birthright as God's own son? Did Israel do it? No. (laughs) No, Israel sinned. Israel sinned, tempted in the wilderness. Israel fell into grievous idolatry, would eventually be exiled, kicked out of the land, cast out, just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Israel cast out of the land. And through the example of Israel, We're taught to hope in a new Exodus. We're taught to hope in a new creation, and we're taught to hope in a true Israel, God's true son. Later, the concept of sonship is seen in the Davidic covenant, where Solomon is a type or a shadow of a future true son. But did Solomon accomplish what God's own son was intended to accomplish? No, he didn't. We know that Solomon failed, the kingdoms was the kingdoms were split. Matthew would later quote the words of God from Hosea 11.1. Matthew would say, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you recognize that from the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew would apply that quote, Out of Israel, or out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew would apply that quote as fulfilled prophecy when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus back from Egypt after the death of Herod. They hid in Egypt to protect the Lord Jesus Christ from Herod when he killed the children under two. When Herod died, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus back from Egypt, and Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 1, as having been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, a text in Hosea 11 that was initially applied to the nation of Israel being called out of Egypt in the Exodus, Matthew applies that text and says that it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. So who is true Israel? Who is the true son of God? By the time the Lord Jesus Christ is being baptized in the river Jordan, in Matthew chapter 3, God says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Not well pleased with Adam not well-pleased with Israel, not well-pleased with Solomon, not well-pleased with others, but well-pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son. The Lord Jesus Christ is immediately taken into the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, where he is tempted by Satan, just as Adam was, just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness. And where Adam fails, where Israel fails, where all who have gone before fail, the, tr- the true son is victorious. Now, The Old Testament scriptures are replete with references to a coming son of God. The son who would fulfill all of God's plans and purposes. A son who would sit on the throne of David and rule over an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9, listen, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are names given to the Son, you see. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And it is this prophesied, this Hoped for true Son of God that Paul then refers to in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh, he was incarnate, God incarnate. Born of the seed of David according to his flesh, according to the flesh, born in his humiliation, you could say, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Adam, Israel, Solomon, others, merely types and shadows, always pointing us forward to their fulfillment in the true Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord ruling and reigning over a new creation, ruling and reigning over a new creation people of God, those people... Who live not according to the old age of weakness associated with the flesh, but rather live according to the new age of resurrection power associated with the Spirit. Now, what is it again that declares Jesus to be the true Son of God? What is it that declares him to be so? What is it that declares that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness, that he has satisfied the just demands of God's law? that he has secured the promises of the covenant, that he has won redemption for his people. What was it that declared him to be the last Adam, the true Israel, a new humanity? It was his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead. In accord with the resurrection life and resurrection spirit, a power of the spirit. It's according to the spirit of holiness. Now, it is because Jesus Christ The true son of God has been raised from the dead to new creation life in the spirit. And because he has accomplished redemption, securing the promises of the new covenant for those who would put their faith in him for salvation. It is because Jesus Christ has accomplished that, that in him, God promises a resurrection from the dead to eternal life for his people. It's in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ that God the Father promises resurrection life to those who put their faith in him, to those who are united to him through faith. Listen to this from Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 comes on the heels of Ezekiel 36 where God announces the new covenant. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, God says. I'll put my spirit within them. I'll take out their heart of stone. I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. I will cause them to walk in my statutes and judgments, and they will keep them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people, right? On the heels of that covenant promise, Ezekiel 37, in the Valley of Dry Bones, verse 12, listen to this. Behold, O my people. These are the people of the new covenant. Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord that's a promise of the new covenant. That's a promise of God's restoration of his people to himself under the new covenant. What is the, the Lord referring to here in Ezekiel 37? He's referring to the new birth. He's referring to spirit wrought resurrection life in regeneration. When those of us who are dead in our sins and trespasses, are brought to life by the Spirit, made alive together with Christ by the Spirit. We are given new creation, new age, you could say, resurrection life in the power and according to the Spirit of holiness. For that reason, Paul, again, Acts chapter 13, verse 32, preaching the gospel at Antioch in Pisidia. Listen to what Paul says. He's he's preaching now uh, Acts chapter 13, we declare to you glad tidings, good news. He's declaring to them the gospel. That promise, which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. And words, the fulfillment of those promises of God, the fulfillment of that new covenant promise is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is announcing, you could say. It is announced for us all. It is declared that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in fulfillment of all these promises because Jesus Christ has been raised up, raised from the dead. As it is also written in the second psalm, Paul says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And that today, speaking of his resurrection, speaking of his resurrection from the dead. Now, I know that's a lot. And I want us to think, I encourage you to think about that biblical theological theme that is traced all the way from Adam in the garden, through the Old Testament, through the the prophetic uh, pronouncements uh, in the prophets of a future coming son, and into fulfillment by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that theme as it's progressing through the scriptures how does all of that relate to our being called sons of God? It relates in this way. In the same way that Jesus Christ is declared to be the son of God in power, in accord with new creation, with the new creation resurrection life and power of the spirit, "...and declared to be the Son of God by and through His resurrection from the dead, those who have been raised to new creation life in Him, those who have been brought into union with Jesus Christ through faith, are those who have themselves been raised to walk in newness of life by the Spirit." His resurrection to that life, according to the Spirit, has become our resurrection to that life, which is according to the Spirit. And God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His own Son, into our hearts, whereby we are given the, the great and precious privilege of crying out to Him as our Heavenly Father, and we ourselves are declared to be sons of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. And that declaration by our own resurrection from among dead ones in union with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see? It's a mouthful, but it all just fits together. Right? The, the Lord Jesus Christ raised in power. The Lord Jesus Christ raised According to the spirit of holiness, we, brothers and sisters, raised in him, in our union with him, raised to walk in newness of life. He became the firstborn among many brethren, bringing with him many sons to glory. Makes sense? Sermons really aren't a dialogue. I don't know if it makes sense or not. Give it time for you to think on that and for you to meditate on that. Put it on the back burner, let it brew, and uh, come to me with questions. In, uh, in union with Jesus Christ, the true son of God, Having received the spirit of adoption, we are given all the rights and privileges of primogeniture. All the rights and privileges of the firstborn son. The right of the firstborn to reign. The right of the firstborn to inherit. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The Son of God comes into the world to save sinners so that we may receive the same status as his. We are brought into union with him so that Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we are declared to be sons of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by our resurrection from the dead. It's our sonship then, our sonship finds its foundation, finds its basis, is entirely based upon the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are sons of God in the same way that he has declared himself or was declared to be son, the son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh, lived life as a man, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He walked in our shoes, so to speak, lived sinlessly, lived perfectly, went to the cross and not just dying and raised to declare himself the son of God, but took upon himself our infirmity, took upon himself our sin, the judgment that we rightly deserve. He bore that in himself on the tree and died in our place. His perfect righteousness given to us is a free gift by God, whereby we could be declared righteous and justified in God's sight. And Jesus Christ, having died, was raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness, or according to the spirit, in a declaration that he is the true son of God. That he's fulfilled that intention of God. He's fulfilled all of the redemptive plans and purposes of God. His resurrection from the dead is a declaration of his sonship such that now having paid the price and redeemed his own, those who put their faith and trust in him by the spirit of God, having been born again, having been raised from dead in trespasses and sins to new life in Jesus Christ, they are raised to walk in newness of life. His resurrection has become our resurrection. Those people are justified in the sight of God, adopted into his household. Now we have the right to become children of God, do you see? We are declared to be sons of God in power by the spirit of holiness or according to the spirit of holiness by our own resurrection from the dead in union with him. He has secured for us the same status as he himself has. And again, we're not natural born sons. We are adopted sons, but we've been given all of the rights and privileges of being called sons of God. We've been given all of, not just sons of God, we've been given all the rights and privileges of primogeniture, of the rights and privileges of the firstborn son, the firstborn son. That's why the saints inherit the kingdom with him. That's why the saints have already begun to rule and to reign with him. That's why the saints with him inherit all things. All things. It is the right of the firstborn. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Can you see how considering all of that, understanding how all of that fits together, how all of that then informs our understanding of Paul's statement in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The loaded statement. Led by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit. Living, living, listen, <sighs> living the new age, new creation, life as it were, by the Spirit, Now. The Spirit has become our down payment, as it were, has become our guarantee of a future inheritance, which includes complete glorification. But that, new, can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in heaven? Can you imagine? Without sin. Without sin. Worshiping and praising as we want to, as, our, as the new heart that God has given to longs to. Right? Worshiping in that way. What it's going to be like living there. Listen, that age, that age, new creation age, has invaded this age by the Spirit. And a down payment, a deposit of the life of that age by the Spirit has been given to you now in the power of the Spirit so that now you may begin to live as sons of God in this age. Do you see? That age invading this age. These who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the same power that now resides in you by the Spirit is the same power with which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is omnipotent power. And we have the power, brothers and sisters, given to us. The Lord Jesus Christ has freed us from enslavement to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has freed us from any condemnation under the law. The Lord Jesus Christ has freed us from enslavement to the condemning power of our own indwelling sin. Broken the power of sin such that by the Spirit, we can live for holiness. We can live for righteousness. Tempted by sin, we can say, no, I acknowledge that I am dead To sin in Christ Jesus and alive to God by the Spirit. And we can live in righteousness and in holiness for him. You don't have to be a lackey to your sin. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Live for him. Be zealous. Be fervent. Be diligent. Right? We're living that life now to a certain degree. (laughs) trying to stay away from the words of false prophets when I say say that. (laughs) Mercy. (laughs) Those led by the Spirit are are those who have been raised to new life, new creation life by the Spirit. They have been united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit. God has sent forth the Spirit of his own Son. Think. God has sent forth the Spirit of his own Son the spirit of his own son, he sent forth that spirit into your heart, into my heart. Why? For the purpose that we could call on God as our father, because we're adopted sons. The same spirit that was upon Christ, the same spirit by whom Christ obeyed, the same spirit by whom Christ lived in his incarnation life. There are many who think that Jesus Christ in his incarnation obeyed perfectly because he's God and God is omnipotent, or that he performed miracles because He's God, and God is omnipotent. Not so, brothers and sisters, not for that reason. Jesus Christ came as a man, and he obeyed as a man, and he lived as a man. He walked in our steps, perfectly obeying the law as a man. How did he do that? In the power of the Spirit. And in that, he becomes a template, if you will. He becomes our great example of how we are to live by the Spirit. When the Lord saves us, he indwells us with his Spirit. God sends forth the Spirit of his own Son into our hearts, whereby we can call God our Heavenly Father. We can cry out to him for help in our time of need. And it's in the power, the omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it's in that power that we can live and obey. Right? Jesus Christ wasn't the only one in the New Testament that did miracles, was he? How did those disciples perform miracles in the power of the Spirit? That is wonder-working power. And the Bible says that's the power that resides in us who have been raised from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness and declared to be sons of God by our resurrection from the dead. That same power resides in you and I to help us put to death the deeds of the body. What is the leading of the Spirit? It's moral. Put to death the deeds of the body and you will live Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they have been adopted. John 1, given the right to become children of God. They now walk, they now live in the power of the Spirit. Do you want to know that you are a son of God? You are walking, you are living in the power of the Spirit. That power is going to have an effect in your life. It's not going to leave you unchanged. It's not going to leave you unmoved. That power is going to have an effect in your life. That resurrection life of the age to come has invaded this age. It's an age that could rightly be called the age of the spirit. Tonight in Revelation chapter 5, we're going to talk about that as well. All of these things dovetailing together. This age could rightly be called the age of the spirit. When Peter is preaching his his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The spirit comes. The spirit comes. The spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2 to empower his church to live their mission in this age, to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, their mission in this age. That's why the Spirit was poured out in chapter... The Spirit indwells all believers. The Spirit poured out in this age so that those who believe in Jesus Christ through faith, those who've been raised from the dead in regeneration, his church, his body, could perform their mission in this age. It could rightly be called the age of the Spirit. By virtue of Christ's own resurrection from the dead declaring him to be the son of God in power. Those led by the spirit are sons of God in union with him, given all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. Verse 15 then, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage. You did not receive the spirit of God as a spirit of bondage, again, to fear. But rather you received the spirit of God as the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Think about the connection to that. You did not receive the Spirit, the Spirit of God, as a spirit of bondage, again to fear, whereby you put yourself back under the fear of condemnation. You put yourself back under that enslavement to condemnation, and you turn from God in fear because of your sin. Do you see that fear of condemnation, that slavish fear of condemnation that sends people fleeing from God, hiding under rocks and under clefts of rocks, praying that the rocks and the mountains would fall on them, that they might die, right? Judas fleeing to the field to hang himself. That's not the, the spirit that you've received. We don't receive the spirit of God as a spirit of bondage again to fear, but notice the contrast. You receive the spirit of adoption whereby you become sons of God, the spirit that now enables you to cling to him, to cling to him in love, cling to him in need, and to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Contrary to popular notions, that term Abba is not the same as daddy. However, that word does um, imply warmth. It does imply tenderness, tenderness. It means that we can approach God with confidence the way that a child might approach their father who loves them, right? A loving earthly father. Unlike our earthly fathers who share a nature like ours, the approach that we make to our heavenly father is always by virtue of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Always by virtue of his work. In other words, we don't approach on our own. And it's always in or by the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray to the Father. We pray to the Father in the name or through the mediation of Jesus Christ and in dependence upon or in the enabling power of the Spirit. And we can call on Him as we live the Christian life, as we live as His children in this world, as sons of God. We can call on Him, Abba, Father. Now, where is this leading? Where is all of this headed? Where is this the new this spirit wrought new age new creation resurrection life resurrection power? Where is it all leading to? Turn with me to Revelation twenty one. Revelation twenty one. All of our texts dovetailing today. (laughs) Revelation twenty one. hope the, the magnitude of this is, is um, resonating with you this morning. I, it's, I had uh, confessed difficulty in trying to lay that out for us, but it is a blessing of just tremendous significance. Revelation 21, look at verse 1. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. It's not just you and I, brothers and sisters, who are regenerated. The whole creation is regenerated. Um, This is referred to in Matthew as the regeneration. Uh, Everything is eventuating in and will terminate upon a new creation for the glory of God. Old creation, original creation, new creation, okay? I, John, verse 2, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the, the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Again, that is a new covenant promise. That's a new covenant promise of God. There won't, if you look down at verse 22, there won't be a temple there. Why? because God is its temple. (laughs) The presence of God is amongst us. God will be with us as he was with Adam in the garden. The temple always a, a, a symbol, if you will, of God's presence among his people. But even in the temple, the temple always communicating separation always communicating separation. There were sacrifices that needed to be made. There were levels that you had to go through. There was a most holy place that was set apart that no one could enter except the high priest once per year and that with blood, okay? Always communicating separation. No separation anymore. (laughs) Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth, new creation, no separation. Verse four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things. All former things have passed away. He who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, "Write, for these words are true and faithful. The full and final consummation of the new creation. That which our regeneration, our new creation, Birth points to in Revelation 21 becomes reality. Verse 6 And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, Nikao, the one who conquers, we'll talk about that tonight. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Why? because they are sons of God, not just sons. They share the status of a firstborn son, the rights and privileges of primogeniture, their right to inherit. He who overcomes, those are the ones who are led by the Spirit. Do they overcome in their own power? No, (laughs) they have no power. They're overcoming by the power of the Spirit at work in them. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now those words, think with me, those words are taken from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's a quote from the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Those words are spoken of Jesus Christ pointing forward to, foreshadowing the coming of the son of David, David's Lord, who would sit upon the throne of David for eternity, the everlasting kingdom. Those words are speaking of Jesus Christ, the son of God. In verse 13, 2 Samuel 7, listen to the words in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. I will be his father, and he shall be to me my son. Those words, speaking of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, who is God speaking them to here in verse 7, Revelation 21, verse 7? God is speaking those words to believers. That is astounding to me. Right? God says them here in Revelation 21, verse 7, to the believer. Only because the believer is united to the Son through faith and is a son by virtue of his sonship. We, brothers and sisters, have become sons of God. We are sons of God. And sons of God, the basis for our sonship is the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall inherit all things. God says, I will be his God. He shall be my son. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The basis of our sonship is this. All of our expectation for our salvation, past, present, and future. All of our hope for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our hope for resurrection to eternal life, for the renewal of all things, for a new heavens and a new earth, for eternal communion with the living God who created us. That faith-filled expectation of the people of God, that hope of the church is all based on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we are sons of God in union with Him. We share His status. Formerly deplorably wicked, bankrupt sinners. You know, (laughs) we'll use that phrase, you know, and it's funny because it rhymes, but from the guttermost to the uttermost. I can think of no better way to to describe the relationship between the two from the absolute deplorable disgusting guttermost to the absolute heights unimaginable heights of being sons of god in jesus christ there is no there is a great gulf fixed <laughs> a great gulf fixed between the two An amazing, amazing transformation. God, through his son, conveys us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. Amazing. Verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the manifest destiny of all those who are the sons of the devil. A great dichotomy, right? A great gulf fixed. 1 John 3.10, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Why is that? Because they're not led by the Spirit. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. These two positions, between them a great gulf fixed. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But to walk according to the Spirit is life and peace. These are not Trite, contrived, or academic things that we discuss here on a Sunday morning or any other time for that matter. These are matters of life and death, heaven and hell. And if you continue to live life for yourself as some cosmic, prideful traitor, uh, you think somehow it's all going to work out for you in the end, uh, you are a fool. And the longer, the longer that you continue to live life as a son or daughter of the devil, you are a fool. When the Lord God holds before you unimaginable blessing, unimaginable riches, glory, eternal life, hope, joy, bliss at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Turn from your sin this life is short you know it I know it it is fleeting you spring up in the morning and by the afternoon you are gone and you're going to take this brief moment this this fleeting fraction of a moment in your eternity and you're going to consume it on your own lust for what? for what for the pla- passing pleasures that this world affords and then you're going to go be with your father when you could have eternal riches in heaven as a son of god you don't take it because you don't believe it right you don't pursue christ because you don't believe it take god at his word he is faithful you'd better believe it. <laughs> Romans eight fourteen. for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of God as a spirit of adoption by whom we are given the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. Let's draw an, an application. The life, brothers and sisters, the life that we will live in eternity is a life in complete conformity to the image of the son of God. That's the life that you and I are going to live in eternity. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his true Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn of many brethren. Not firstborn for himself. Not even firstborn for some ethnic physical people east of the Mediterranean. God says, it's too small a thing, too small a thing that you should receive Judah as your inheritance. Behold, he says to the son, I give you the nations. Jesus Christ will be the firstborn among many sons that he will bring to glory. And we will be conformed in perfect conformity to his image, the image of God's own son. That is a life, his life, that life, that is a life that is according to or in the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit who is given to us is the same Spirit who is at work in Christ and Christ was sustained by the Spirit, Christ obeyed in the power of the Spirit, Christ persevered through the enablement of the Spirit and Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the Spirit. It was in and through his life according to the Spirit, that the Son of God becomes our example, our forerunner. We are to live as he lived. Mark Jones said this, in this, that God created a master copy of the religious and spiritual life of the Son. And it's that same religious life, that same spiritual life, that the Spirit imparts to you and I, whom he indwells. In the same way that God the Son was led by the Spirit of God as the Son of God, We are led by the Spirit of God as sons of God. And a particular guarantee, a deposit if you will, a particular guarantee of that new creation, that glorified life that we will live in eternity has been given to us in this life. That age has invaded or infiltrated this age. And it it has done so through the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who have been born again and united to Jesus Christ. That means, brothers and sisters, that the more that we know him, the more like him we become. The more that we know him, the more that we are transformed into his image, the more like him we become. James Smith. So what does that mean? It means we should pursue knowledge of him, grow in our knowledge of him, grow in our love for him. James Smith, uh, predecessor of Spurgeon, wrote this, wherever the spirit of Christ is, he reveals Christ to the understanding. He enthrones Christ in the affections. He gives Christ control of the will. He endears Christ to the heart. He glorifies Christ in the soul, and he conforms the person to the lovely likeness of Christ. I like that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we, <laughs> we acknowledge that we are just scratching the surface in our understanding and our consideration of these things. That we are the sons of God. Sons of God on the basis of our Lord Jesus Christ, His person, His work, declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, and that our sonship is by virtue of our union with Him, our Savior, Who is the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who took upon himself our sin, died in our place as a man, and was raised from the dead. And now, having been raised bodily, has ascended bodily, and is bodily in heaven at the right hand of the majesty. What an amazing thought, the forerunner, the firstborn among many brethren. And we pray, Lord, bring the sons to glory. Come quickly, sanctify us, preserve us, strengthen us. Continue, Lord, to conform us into your image, uh, to make us a chaste bride. And come quickly, Lord, that we may be glorified together with you, that all things may become new, that tears may be wiped away, that disease, sickness, and death may end forever and you be glorified in the praise of your people for all eternity. We love you. We long for that day. Help us now to live according to the Spirit, in accord with that age which is to come, by putting to death the deeds of the body, by fighting that holy warfare that you've given us to fight, and by, in this life, preaching your word, preaching the gospel, that all may know uh, you are the true Son of God raised in power by the Spirit. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for these glorious blessings that are ours in union with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.